pattern your turkey guns, people, man. The biggest thing that I would say too is even if your gun holds a good pattern, pattern it. Because yeah. like whether you're using a bead or a red dot, the most important thing is to know where that pattern hits really close. Like you should feel comfortable that your golf ball size pattern at 10 yards, you can put on a golf ball, right? Because that's uh -huh. where people miss. If you can't approach somewhere where the coyotes shouldn't be able to see or smell you, that's a recipe for disaster, right? In an ideal world, you can approach from downwind and out of view, and then you get to the spot where you're gonna call, you set up your caller, you get 100% set up, so you're not gonna move a freaking muscle. I tend to actually use way more coyote vocals than I do prey sounds just because I think it's more fun. I like understanding the language of animals. Mm -hmm. So I use a lot more vocals than prey sounds. So this time of year is my favorite time of year to call because you know those, those vocals are a higher success rate. That kind of gets in a little bit into like the whole idea. I would say like part of the success there is, and this goes for elk too. I mean, people that are just, and turkeys, um, you know, if, if you're just getting into hunting a species and you want general overall success, a really way to do that, a good way to do that through calling is mimicry, right? If the coyote barks at you, bark back because that, whether you know it or not, that, that bark is a really aggressive sound. And so if you challenge him back, it's most likely that he's gonna come in, right? If he barks at you and you go all passive and submissive, not as likely, right? So I think, you know, I kind of use that mimicry as a general guideline and then you just really, I try to like just listen really carefully when they do respond and try to get their temperature and then just act accordingly. The hardest thing obviously about bow hunting, no matter what you're hunting, is getting the draw off, right? Coming to full draws where you're gonna get busted nine times out of 10 if you're gonna get busted. Yeah. And so I can absolutely see with how you set up for, for coyotes for bow hunting is probably very similar to how I try to set up for turkeys for bow hunting, right? And that's to give yourself a safe place to draw or some type of cover where they're gonna either pass behind a log or put their head down below a rise that's gonna give you a chance to draw. Hey guys, real quick before we get into this episode, I need you to do me a couple of favors. First, go give us a review on iTunes. Can't stress it enough, it's really, really important for me to help keep this free and to help me keep it going. Next, get involved with your hunting rights. Go join Howl for Wildlife. Super simple, takes a couple minutes, you can even do the free membership, I don't care, but be involved. Lastly, I want you to do yourself a favor and up your shooting game and go get you some Phoenix shooting bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%. That's all I got for you. Let's get into this episode. Hi, welcome to Days in Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Today, uh, we are going to talk um, turkey. We're going to talk turkey. We're going to talk a little bit of predator hunting and maybe who knows who knows what else got my buddy uh logan holtz on with us and uh we're gonna shoot the shit here and see uh see what we get into what's going on man doing well john how are you oh, tired <laughs> really tired you're one of those guys that just always busy so you're either like running a thousand miles an hour or crashing from running a thousand miles an hour yeah i almost never crash though that's the problem <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem one of these days i'm just gonna stop moving period yeah. no crashing just stop <laughs> i'm like a shark if i stop swimming i'm dead it's like yeah it's and it seems to be getting worse and worse like i mean especially with half a while i adding half a while to the plate that was not um for health reasons a, a smart move on my part 
<laughs> you know, you know, most people would consider that like their one big thing that they do, or or they would like run an outfitter, or they would like run a podcast, or <laughs> yeah, you know, the and or statements and how different they are. Any any <laughs> any one thing, yeah, for sure. Yep, that is uh, that is true. I uh, I definitely have too much going on, and it's. Uh, it's getting to the point where I might actually have to eliminate something. And I don't know what that is. So obviously it can't be helpful wildlife and it can't be my swimming pool company because that's what puts food on the table. So I got to choose something else. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'll be the last guest ever on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Sad. That's, that's sad to say. I mean, I've been doing this for like, 15 plus years i'm one of the original original podcasters that's impressive you know if you ever do decide to, to phase out of it you got to let me interview you as one of your last podcasts I, i've always wanted to do that i've always wanted to be on the other side of the podcast coin oh yeah for sure <laughs> we could do that whether or not i uh stop doing the podcast or not i've had i've That'd had be fun I've had guys come on the show and interview me. Actually, just did one recently. Um, one of the guys that uh, won my javelina hunt uh, that we were giving away through Halfo Wildlife was uh, Armando Martinez. Uh, him and I have since then become good friends. Uh, he owns a company called Bow Hitch. Makes a little uh, component for your bow to connect to a tether that to carry your bow. I mean, I got to tell you, at first I was really standoff off about it and I was like, eh, I don't need another fucking gadget, but I like it. I like it a lot, especially for elk hunting, you know, where you're putting a lot of miles type deal. It's a, it's a neat, neat little deal to have. But anyway, he, he had come on the podcast to interview me about coming javelina hunting. And, um, and, and over the years I've done it a few times, a few times, but that was the most most recent, um, I remember a really popular podcast of mine was back, I don't know, probably 2016, 2017, something like that. Uh, and Garrett Weaver came on to interview me about bow hunting, uh, bow hunting coyotes. So, so it happens and definitely, uh, definitely love to have you, have you on. I don't know what the hell I have to offer that these guys haven't already heard, but, um, yeah. Hey, not many people bow hunt coyotes, so <laughs> that's a good segue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, why don't you give us a little quick rundown about yourself, and then we'll uh, we'll jump into some some questions. Yeah, man. So, my name is Logan Holtz. Um, I grew up in North Central Wisconsin, uh, John. I know you grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in the Midwest, and like you, I found myself out west. Right, I had the nature nature and Western hunting was calling went to school at the University of Wisconsin and I've worked in the outdoor industry my, my whole career. I worked at Cabela's corporate headquarters in Sydney, worked for their marketing team in Denver, and then went to go be the marketing director at Burris Optics for the last five years. And now I'm at Quiet Cat eBikes. And so I always like to mention my career path because it does tie directly into hunting, my, my number one passion in life. And it's given me a lot of opportunities. I get to work where I play and play where I work. And you know, John, that's how, how we ended up meeting. So yep. kind of a, yep, that's how everything comes full circle. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, our good mutual friend, Tony Cachera put us together. Yeah. Tony, 
Tony's the man, and Tony has a uh, four-leaf clover up his butt, man. <laughs> I love that guy. You know why? Yeah. Because he's always – and I, I see this I, – I know, I know a couple other guys like him. My best friend, Dominic. My cousin, Anthony. And they always put out good. So yep. good always finds them. Yep. And Tony's one of those guys. Like, yep. you know, he's got the salesman part about him too. He's a, he's a shaker and a mover and he talks, but he's always putting out good vibes, you know, and he's, yep. he's like, he's positive. He's always got people's best interest in mind. Like, and yep. that is the reason why good always finds him. And I, I yep. he's so. a good guy, man. I always smiling. Like you said, always good vibes on him and, just doing the right thing, man. You do the right thing and good will find you. Yeah. That's probably why I don't, uh, I would, I never do the right thing. And I probably, that's why the cloud always follows me. I always got the, <laughs> the rain cloud over my head. No, I was just turning around. But yeah, I love Tony. He's a good guy. So we're, a lot of places already started Turkey season. season has already started. A lot of places out here out west, it's they're just about to start. So I'm going to try to push this out there. And uh, I know you're an avid turkey hunter. I, you're, you got another good friend that I'm not really good friends with, but I've been talking to him back and forth for the last two years or so. And that's Bryce over at Foxtrot. And he speaks really highly of you. Actually, I you prompted me to that other podcast that you were on um, uh, chasing tales or whatever. And I kind of listened into both you and Bryce just to, just a touch to see. And it's funny cause I reached out to Bryce uh, last week and I believe I was supposed to have him on today, but we never solidified anything, but I, I should have him on in the next day or two. Cause I want to talk to him about patterning and choke tubes and all that stuff um which kind there of is nobody there is nobody in the world that knows more about how a shotgun should function and how you can get the most out of your shotgun and how to make the best most dense pattern at long distance than bryce i'm confident in saying that he is truly like one of the inventors of, of tss and my big movement that's happened and uh, he's just been in the game for so long. He's going to be a phenomenal person to have on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I was curious to see, he started making like a, like a coyote load. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, I, I've, I've used him a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. I'll have you nice. I, I, and I'm like, man, I just want to, I kind of want to set up. Well, I have several different shotguns, but I kind of want to set up another so shotgun and I just want to have it set specifically for coyotes and like i want to find the best choke and uh best ammo load and all that like sight and all if i'm gonna even run a sight on it, i don't know but i just set my benelli up for turkey hunting and i don't know if i like it the way it's set up to just throw yeah. a different choke on it and throw a different ammo on it to shoot it for coyotes so i don't know and i'll tell you one thing i have a i have a shotgun set up specifically for for coyote and it's actually, instead of using the same gun that I do for turkey, I consider that like a weight. For turkey, I really like hunting with sub gauges, like 410s and 20s. Oh, yeah. Coyote, obviously, you're going to want that extra punch, that 12 gauge. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, I think I have perfected the the perfect coyote gun. I'll run you through, you know, what my setup looks sure, like. Sure, let's start quick. there. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's start there. <laughs> Why not? Um, I think 
my turkey gun or my coyote gun rather is the same gun that I use for snow goose hunting. Okay. I just changed the choke. And so like, I'm obviously an avid waterfall hunter. Most of what my YouTube channel is, is waterfall hunts. I have almost 200 waterfall hunt videos up on there, which is just crazy. I've been nice. doing it for like 10 years before it was ever popular, obviously. And yeah, so that it's a Breda A400 is the base gun. In my opinion, that's just the smoothest shooting 12 gauge that there is. Mm. Because of that kickoff system they have in the stock, you just get no recoil. And more importantly than the recoil is barrel lift. Mm. When you're shooting those really high powered waterfall loads or coyote loads, you just have way better target reacquisition with the, the kickoff system. Yeah. So it's a Breda A400 base. By, I've done a bunch of shot testing and, and choke tube testing and by far and away the best choke tubes on the market are in the end creek yeah in terms of being able to accept the most that's, amount of ammo bryce likes and he's the one that got me on it like like many things when you get around people that have been doing it for as long as bryce you pick up things right and that was one thing he turned me <laughs> on to right away was you know, Indian Creek is the way to go as far as like ammo diversity, which is totally true. I can run cheaper Kent ammo through that thing and it's going to pound, or I can run Bryce's Tennessee twister load through that thing and it's going to pound. So, um, on that shotgun, I just run a, um, a simple sling. I'm a big fan of those Eagle claw slings. You know what I'm talking about? They're just like that rubber material. Mm -hmm. Um, they're skinny and light and they grip really well. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of my, my coyote setup. I, I do have a, a Burris speed bead on it. It allows you to mount a red dot. It kind of pinches between the receiver and the stock. And sometimes for coyotes, I'll use that. But anymore, I actually just like the bead uh, better on the shotgun. And then I have a, a Briley extended tube on it. So it fits up to like, I think it's 13 rounds it fits. Nice. Which for shotgun hunting is really nice. If you're in dense cover and you call in a three pack, you just start unloading on them. And I mean, you can wear them out pretty quick. Yeah. Um I would say, I would say overall effectiveness with that gun. I actually was, uh, a couple of different times I've gone up in helicopters or airplanes, helping government trappers take care of problem coyotes. And, uh, with, with that gun, that choke tube and Bryce's, he calls them the Tennessee twister load. It's a, a, a 12 gauge load that is TSS. That is just an absolute hammer. He loads them for Turkey, but they trust me, they work on coyotes <laughs> that TSS, no matter what it is, once it gets to where it's going, it doesn't stop. It goes through it. So, mm. um, you know, effective distance on that shotgun, very comfortable at hundred yards on a coyote, 110 yards, even it'll take them out, yeah. which is crazy. Cause you're talking a shotgun. <laughs> yeah. So, um, believe it or not, I got a, I got a Stoger M3000. I think it's a 28 inch barrel mm -hmm. and I have, I have a Carlson. I think it might just be there. It's not the coyote, but it's, I believe it's their long range buckshot. And with two and three quarter Remington Magnum bucks, double odd buck. I could kill coyotes at a hundred yards with that. Yep. That's that. Yeah. So, and my, and before that, I used to use my dad gave me, I it was a, it's a Remington 1100, but it came with the goose barrel. It doesn't have interchangeable chokes on it. It just has a goose barrel and it was a longer barrel. I, I think a 28 might've been a 30. It was a longer barrel. I only shot two and three quarter, you know, it's a, gun from i was a baby when he got it and he was given to me and i had it up until just recently i just recently uh got rid of it when i got my my benelli but um 
that gun too, man, 80 to 100 yards, no problem with that same double odd buck. And it was the craziest thing. Like that I bought, I have two or three other shotguns and whatever the case may be, I can't get those damn things. I mean, they shoot like, but like shotgun shooting 50, 60 yards max, you know, accurate at that distance, but man, not the yeah. same as being able to reach out and touch the coyote at a hundred <laughs> if you had to, you know, it, it all comes down to that MOA calculation, right? Whether you're shooting a rifle or a shotgun, it's the same thing. If your shotgun pattern is holding a four inch group at 50 yards, that means it's going to be an eight inch group at a hundred, right? right? It's all just that, that mathematical equation. So yep. yeah, the tight, the tighter and more consistent, you can get that pattern up close, the better it's going to be at distance. Yeah. My, my biggest realization to that was last year I was, I was hunting with Charles in California for Turkey and he sneaks in on this bird. We couldn't get him to come over the fence. So he had a, he had a sneak and he, and he got 20 yards and he shoots and, and I know he's a good shot. He shoots, the bird tumbles and then gets up and takes off. Oh, and I'm like 20 fucking yards. What a 12 gauge. There's no way, no way. I'm like, dude, we got to go pattern. We got to go shoot this gun. So I got like a four by four piece of cardboard. I set him back to 40 and I said, okay, shoot that dot in the center right there he shoots we went over there there was literally like three pellets in that whole four by four i'm like isn't that crazy what the f and so now in california you have to use non-lead ammo and he wasn't using tss i don't know what it was that he was using um probably bismuth or something like that one of the lead alternatives and i'm like man did you ever try to pattern this thing before you shot this? Like, he's like, no. I'm like, well, but he's killed turkey with it before. Like, I don't know. This this gun does Man. not like this ammo. That choke does not like this ammo. I, so you I, I, know. I hate I, I hate the excuse too of like, oh, it's killed the turkey before because yeah, you know, just like one pellet, all, one pellet, one pellet. That's all it yeah. takes. It one takes one to the lucky head. BB. Yep, it takes exactly. one lucky BB. So. Pattern your turkey guns, people, man. The biggest thing that I would say, too, is even if your gun holds a good pattern, pattern it. Because, yeah. like, whether you're using a bead or a red dot, the most important thing is to know where that pattern hits really close. Yeah. Like, you should feel comfortable that your golf ball size pattern at 10 yards, you can put on a golf ball, right? Because uh -huh. that's where people miss. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's freaking crazy to me. I was like, I've never seen a shotgun at 40 yards have that poor of a like there wasn't there were yeah. literally i mean i'm I, i'm not really exaggerating when i said there was like three or four pellets on the freaking on a four by four like, bryce, bryce the is the guy did it go it was like it bryce is the guy that uh you bring that up with bryce and he's gonna be like yeah this is probably what it was you need to do this or do this or yeah. it, like he knows so much about that it'll be yeah. you'll have to bring that story up with him and not, right. i'm, I'm gonna to stop talking about that. it right here because i'm gonna get bryce on and we're gonna we're gonna dive yeah. deep into that stuff yeah all right so let's talk let's talk coyote hunting so because we started with that so I like to ask this. This is a question that I've asked several people before, but when you're going into an area, like you've never been to an area, you've never gone coyote hunting here, what is your starting point? Like how do you pick a spot? Where do you, what, do you, what in, tickles your fancy to go, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go call over here. Like, what are you looking for? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that. I'm going to start by kind of flipping that question on its head and say, 
how I got into coyote hunting is using coyote hunting to get access to, to lands, to private lands. Mm -hmm. And so most of the time it's me knocking on a farmer's or rancher's door and saying, Hey, you know, it's spring calving season. I know you guys have coyotes around here. Would you like me to take care of them? And I use that to build a relationship and rapport with them so I can get land on their tags. And so I can have private land hunting access for things like Turkey, for example. Nice. And so Sometimes it's set for me, right? I know I'm hunting that ranch. And then it becomes a question of, I know where I'm hunting. Like in some cases, it's a small plot of land where I grew up in Wisconsin. I'd get access to these little 40 acre parcels. So I knew where I was hunting. Then it was a matter of how do I kill them in that spot? Mm -hmm. So that's like, I guess, one way of how I handled where to go is it was determined by where I wanted to hunt other things. Like I knew they had good deer hunting. So that's why I was turkey hunting there. Got it. Um, Got it. I, I would say like if I'm hunting public land here out West, which I, you know, do do a lot of now, I think it really just depends on, you know, if I'm going to night hunt it or if I'm going to day hunt it, I, I got really into to night hunting when I launched all of uh, Burris's thermal stuff that they put out. And, uh, for, for night hunting stuff, I do like a lot more flat terrain. You can just see them coming in from so much further away mm. during the day. You know, if you're hunting those, those prime time sets, the sunrise sunset, Man, I think it just really depends on time of year because, well, especially where I live, John, here in the mountains of Colorado, the coyotes move a lot throughout the year. They're they're a lot like the migratory elk and deer herds that where they are in the middle of summer, they are not going to be within 30 miles of there this time of year, right, in the winter. Yeah, we so, see that up north as well. Yeah, they, they move a lot. So, you know, right now, this time of year, spring, I'm going to be hunting right around I'm going to literally drive around, find the ranches that are dropping calves, and I'm going to hunt there. Like, I'm going to hunt where the calves are dropping because that's where the coyotes are hunting. You know, is, as, as time goes on and, and the calves are dropped and the coyotes can't really get to them as much anymore, it just changes throughout the season. But from a very high-level point of view, I'm obviously going to start by looking at, you know, let's say I do find I get access to a big ranch and it's not calving season. I'm going to look at that ranch on, on base maps is the, the, the mapping system I use. And I'm going to kind of start to dissect it and say, okay, this looks like a, you know, denning grounds. Here's where I think they're going to move. And then I'm going to try to catch them in their transition path between where their den is and where they're hunting. And, you know, especially out West where it's so dry, mm -hmm. most of their food sources are going to be centered around water. And so, you know, they're going to be going to Creek bottoms and stuff at night to hunt the rabbits and the squirrels and, you know, everything else that they get after. So. Right. So. Tell me what specifically you look at and say, oh, this is, this is a place that a coyote would hunt. This is a, this is a place that coyotes would bet up. This is a transition zone. Like what says that to you? Yeah. I mean, obviously I touched on like where they hunt. I think a lot of where they hunt is just focused around where the prey animals are. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the middle of fields and stuff like egg fields, they'll mouse around and stuff like that. One thing that I've found is I, I kind of consider those fields, kind of those transition zones, at least by us, they like the den up in the hills where they can kind of get their den into the side of something, whether it's a cliff or a bank, they don't like to go down. Now in the plains of Colorado, where I hunted them for the last five years, they it'll be perfectly flat, right? You'll pull up your thermal at night and you'll be like, there's not a coyote within sight. You turn on your collar and all of a sudden there are just thermal signatures popping out of the ground everywhere. And that's them just coming out of their den. So <laughs> if it's flat, they will den in the flats. Right. Yeah. But from what I've seen is like, if they have topography, which they do where I live now, they do like to den in the side of things. And then they, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, they're hunting those Creek bottoms and, 
they kind of use those fields as I guess I would identify those as like transition zones where they're, you know, as the light is getting right for them to hunt, they're kind of mousing around and kind of getting the legs stretched out and getting warmed up for the, the middle of the night hunt. Cause I mean, especially if you're hunting areas that are low in coyote numbers and heavy in hunter numbers, if they're pressured, mm-hmm. they're primarily going to be hunting at night. They're, they're not going to be out a whole lot during the day. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I definitely don't, uh, I envy you. I've been predator hunting once at nighttime, I think. It's not something I've been able to do. Oh, I've done it more than once now. I think about it. I did it in Texas also, but yeah, we're not allowed to do it here. You guys can't even do it via uh, light, huh? Mm-mm. Yeah. See, Colorado's weird. So we can't use thermals in Colorado unless you have, um, you're on private land and you have to talk to the warden. And sometimes in some areas you have to get a degradation permit in order to be able to use the thermals. Mm. But you can get a night hunting exemption permit in Colorado to hunt under um, like light, physical light. light. Got it. Yeah. And so, you know, you just get with your local warden and say, you apply for a permit, they have a bunch of them. And then, you know, then you just, you hunt them with the, I use a headlamp that's a, a red and green and it's set, I believe it's set to flood. And at light at night, my favorite thing to do is call them in dense timber, like Creek bottoms. Yep. And then, you with a shotgun you just call them right to the call and you shoot them off your feet it can there's a that's a freaking rush man it's so much fun that's kind of what i do here during the day i i mean because we, we briefly touched on it i mostly bow on them so i typically you know i have them under 30 more times than not they're under 15 but yeah for the most part they're... let me ask you a question there because i've i've, I've killed a lot of coyotes with my bow but it's always been out of mule deer stock, right? right, right. <laughs> or glassing for elk. And, you know, anybody that likes to coyote, yeah, anybody that likes to coyote hunt, I'm sure is in the same boat as me here. No matter what you're hunting, if you see a coyote, it turns into a coyote hunt. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That's that's how I've killed all my coyotes with a bow. A bow. I've never actually specifically gone out coyote hunting with my bow. So yeah, I want to ask funny. you a question. Sure. Like w- when you get those, when you call those coyotes in for, for bow hunting, are they coming to vocals or are they coming to prey sounds? And then how do you get them? Like, how do you choose your shot opportunity? Wow. That's, this is going to be a very, very, very long podcast. So (laughs) basically for me, it's all about, for one, let me back you up. The sound doesn't necessarily matter. I've done it with coyote sounds and I've done it with prey sounds. I'll explain the difference in the coyotes reaction that makes a little difference there. But for me, it's all about the setup. I want to direct the traffic. I want the coyotes to come from a certain way or at least present me with not necessarily coming from a certain direction, but where they have to come and give me a shot opportunity. It could be head on at times. I've, I've taken plenty of head on. But for the most part, I get them to come broadside in front of me. And it's not something I could do hand calling. I definitely have to use an e-caller. And more times than not, I find myself passing spots that I think would be a good spot to call from if I had a shotgun in my hand. But I'm looking for a very specific setup. And without me being able to paint you a picture... I have I have what I call is the blind or where I'm sitting 
or you know the 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 shooter is sitting then i have the hide which is where i hide my call and that is usually has some kind of a structure to it either it's a you know a big bush complex or dense tree or a rock outcropping or something where the predator has to come around that to get to see the call and this is a philosophy that i developed with elk with turkey now i'm pretty much anything that you can call i call it the commonality that links all calling the animals want to see what they're hearing and once they get to a spot that they can see what they're hearing that's usually what we call the hang-up spot for most people. So I have these situations I build in to my spot. And sometimes I physically build it in. Like I'll go and I'll saw cut a branch or whatever and lay it down. You know, whatever. I've done that before. Or broken branches to put behind me to break up my cover. I set it up so that they that my hang-up spot is within bow range. Yep. Yeah, I mean, with the bow, that's really important, right? And like you said, it applies to all things. I mean, I do that for turkey, for elk. You just make it so that the first point where they think they should see what they heard, you can kill them, right? right. Yep. So that makes perfect sense. Obviously, I mean, with a shotgun, you don't have to worry about that as much. Same thing with a rifle. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even with, you know, calling coyotes for whether it's day or night, especially like if you're night hunting on a full moon, they can still see fine. It's no different than hunting during the day. They're just out more, but you know, you get to that where, what I call like when they, you know, when they sit down, oh, like yeah. coyotes, they do that where they plant their butt and their front arms are straight and they just look and every coyote, it seems like is that is just ritual for them. When they get to the point where they think they should be able to see what they're hearing, bam, their butt hits the ground. And in that moment, it's the perfect spot to take the shot, right? They're not moving, they're planted. Hmm. And I think, you know, you're asking about setups and man for calling with a rifle. That's definitely one thing I do is, if they're coming from over here, I know they're going to sit down on that hill. Now, I think the difference is like, I really am a big fan of trying to get doubles, triples, and, and multiples. Like, that's why I coyote hunt. It's not to shoot the single. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if I get the one that's going to, if I get one that's like responding to me and I know there's just one coming and he sits on the hill, I'm probably going to dust him. If there's two or three, they're going to sit, they're going to look, they're going to not see what they heard, and then they're going to keep coming, right? And in those groups, that's how you really make, you know, good use out of getting three or four in and really trying to get most of them down is you let them get in as close as possible. And so a lot of times that might look like them coming over a hill and then they, they're pretty far away. They're trying to see what they heard, but they can't. And then they drop down and then, then they come up right in your face. Right. Right. Um, and that's when you, you start cutting into them. You know, one thing that I look for in a setup and I think your, your archery setup, a lot of that same stuff applies. It's obviously with bow hunting is just a lot harder. And so you, I think you uh, hit the nail on the head as, as far as like things to look for in an archery setup. And I do that a lot more with the shotgun, but with the rifle, one thing that I look for as far as like in a setup is, is the approach. Yes. So if, if I am looking at a map and I know, Hey, here's the area I'm going to call, here's where I think they're betting. Here's where I think they're transitioning. And here's where I think they're you know, eating where they're, they're chasing their food. I know where I'm going to call on the map. Now the question is, how do I get there? Right. And can I get there? Because if I cannot get there through a valley or through um, a ditch or like below a horizon, I won't, I won't even try to call it. It's, it's just not, it's not going to work. 
they don't just spend their entire day laying down in the den, not looking and then pop out when the sound, when they hear the sound, right? Right. Nine times out of 10, they're out on their feet or they're around or they're poking their head out of their den or, you know, what have you. So I think that's probably the number one important thing I do with the setup is just how am I going to approach this area? And, and the, per, the person who really, you know, mentored me on that aspect is Heath Baker. That guy kills more coyotes than anybody in this country, guaranteed hands down every year. I killed like 638 coyotes last year. Um, so and he's big on approach, right? We did a whole series of videos with Burris just going over like how to coyote hunt. And that was one thing that he really preached. And it's something I always did, but never really, when you do hunt something for so long, you just do it. Right. Mm-hmm. But you don't really, when you're telling people about it, you don't really think about it. Like I'll come and calling elk's a great example. You always set up so that when they first should be able to see what they heard, you can shoot them but you might not even realize you do that. You just over time have, have developed into doing that. Right. And that was the approach for me with coyote hunting was, you know, I, I've always did it. And then he, you know, said that on a video and I was like, that I was shooting with him. I was co-videoing with him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, that's a really good point approach. And then we did an entire series of videos on the approach and what to look for. But the wind is a huge factor in that approach. If you can't approach somewhere where the coyotes shouldn't be able to see or smell you, that's a recipe for disaster, right? Yep. So absolutely. in an ideal world, you can approach from downwind and out of view, and then you get to the spot where you're going to call, you set up your caller, you get 100% set up. So you're not going to move a freaking muscle. Use like this little blanket that I, I, a ghillie that I put over my gun. It kind of covers me. My gun's on a tripod locked and ready to go right where I think they're going to appear. So I, if they do appear where I think they're going to appear, I don't even have to move an inch. You're sit down, you're comfortable because you're calling anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes. I try not to really do sets for over 30 minutes, but you you're, call, you're you call a lot longer than I do. <laughs> yeah. Like 30 minutes anyway. is typically, yeah, yeah. T- 30 minutes is typically my max. And you have to, I guess I set up for all types of predator because mm-hmm. yeah, typically a coyote's going to come in hot and heavy, but we have a lot of bobcat and a lot of fox out here. And those things tend, tend to really take their time coming in. And so it's very common for a coyote or a bobcat to be sitting there and, you know, you get impatient after 15 minutes, you're like, no coyotes, you stand up to go pick up the collar and you see some tail flashing over the thing because it was just taking its time getting in. So, you know, I guess I'm breaking this out into like all predator calling oh, yeah. and hunting, not, not just coyotes. But, of course. Of course. Yeah. 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 So for, for me, and this might be a region thing, fox have short man's disease here for sure. And, and I, honestly, other places where I've hunted them, but that doesn't mean it's the same everywhere. Typically, if I'm calling a fox and it's coming in the first like five, six minutes. And oh, I would agree with you. I would agree with you on fox vocals, right? Mm-hmm. If, if I'm, I've noticed they're like playing prey sounds. They kind of take their time coming in because okay. I think they kind of, at least in certain, like my area, they know they're not the alpha predator. Right. Like there is not, there's nine out of 10 predators that would kick a fox's ass. Right. Of course. <laughs> and so when they hear a prey sound, they're like, oh man, did something else beat me to it? I don't want to run up on something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're right, man. If you play like, um, like a, a fox pup distress, dude, oh, they yeah. are coming. They're coming hard. They're coming hard. Okay. <laughs> are, yes. Coming I guess hard. I should say that when I'm targeting fox, I know they're coming pretty quick. Bobcat definitely. I mean, I've had them come in very quick, but for the most part, that's that 20 minute, you know, type of call. Bears, same thing, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, lion, I've only called in one, uh, two, actually, two lions. And both of them 
came in fairly quickly. You know, Shane, um, who works for me, he's one of my guides. He's killed three lions that he's called in, and they all came in very quickly. I I believe, if I remember his right, his stories. They all came in very quickly, but I've had other guys tell me that you got to call for, you know, at least 30 minutes if you're trying to target lions. And that's one thing that I've been trying to get into because my area has a ton of lions. And actually, my unit, we can use an e-caller. We don't have to hand call. Okay. Um, most of Colorado's hand call only. Really? And mm. so I've been targeting mountain lions this year. I've been trying to call them in. I haven't been successful yet. I've gotten one to come in and respond to me, the, the whistle back at me. Mm. Um, but I never saw it through the junipers. It was super thick, probably 150 yards away. I would love to pick Shane's brain, man, and just like, is he calling him on prey sounds? Is he calling him in a mountain lion vocals? Yeah. Like what time of year, man? Yeah, it was all prey sounds. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. just, just, I have the same, I think he has the same philosophy on the lions as I do with bears. I look for fresh sign. And when I find fresh sign, that's when I call. And I've called in several bears that way. But I mean, I think, I think his first one or second one, I can't remember. That was a blind call. He just kind of like, Oh, that looks like a cool spot to go call. And he called and freaking lion came in. So, and I've been, I've been trying to do the blind and it's not necessarily blind calling, but like, well, what not I've been necessarily doing is, going in. He wasn't right, going right. in there saying, Hey, I'm going to go try to kill a lion. He was like, I'm going to go call predator call in there. And, Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. See, I've been targeting mountain lions. Like I, yeah. I have been calling, like I've been using mountain lion vocals and I've been designating sits specifically to mountain lions. Gotcha. And what I've been looking for are like, and this just makes sense to me. Like we don't have fresh snow on the ground right now, mm-hmm. but what we have is all the animals are down in our winter zone. So the mule deer and the elk have these like natural pinch points mm. where they come out of steep canyons or maybe even they go under an overpass, right? Or there's like a fence pinch point at a, at a ranch. And so you, if you follow the tracks or you watch the elk and, and deer go in and out of these fields, they go to these bottleneck spots. And so that's what I've been calling just because I figured like, well, if I'm a mountain lion, that's where I'm going to hunt. Right. right, right and yep. so I've been hunting the places where I think the mountain lions are going to hunt and it hasn't worked for me yet, but dude, it makes sense in my head. <laughs> it, it will eventually. You get one that's hungry enough. I'm sure you've been in earshot of them and they haven't, uh, they just said, eh, we don't know if I want to go there. But that's the scary thing about them. Like I guarantee you I've called them in. I just never saw them or heard them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially the way I set up, I tell people all the time, I'm like, I don't have a super high success rate in calling them in. I have a super high success rate in getting them killed when I do call them in, you know, to have an 80 plus percent success rate with a bow. When you call one in to kill it, it's about setup, right? I don't know how many I've called in and they came in outside. I, well, I, I could tell you right now it happens a lot where I call them in and then they don't come into my kill zone and they're sitting there barking at like a hundred yards and I don't see them. It happens. Yeah. That's because mostly because of wind or yeah. they came across my ingress. Like, you know, you ever try to, when they bark at you like that, you ever try to like bark back at them and sure. just interrogate them to come in? Absolutely. Well, I found, and I don't, didn't want to give this up, but you're, 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 you said it. I That's have, what I would do. <laughs> I have, I have a, I have a, um, you know, uh, so if they're barking at me, I have a technique that 
in the last two years, I've been really three years, I've been working in a lot and I've had about, I'm going to say about 30% of them end up coming in and giving me, giving me an opportunity. I think once I kind of perfect it a little bit more, but I have a series. I, I use, I use growls. I use coyote barks and, you know, different type of challenge vocals that, that, uh, entice them to come in, but I'm not going to get heavy into it. One, cause I haven't, once I, once I get that number up above 30%, 35%, whatever it's at, I might start sharing it. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it too, just depends on the coyotes in your area, man. Like, yep. Time of year too. There's all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, is it breeding season? Yeah. Is there right now it's breeding season. Yeah, it's breeding season here yeah. in Arizona. Yeah, so. that's the prime time for coyote vocals, right? I tend to I tend to actually use way more coyote vocals than I do prey sounds, just because I think it's more fun. I like understanding the language of animals, mm-hmm. so I use a lot more vocals and prey sounds. So this time of year is my favorite time of year to call because you know those those vocals are a higher success rate. Yeah, you know, for sure. That kind of gets in a little bit into like the whole idea of like a calling sequence, right? Like, yeah. Why why don't you take me through one? Take me through one of your talk calling sequences. Yeah. Yeah. So if I like, if I'm here, I'm predator hunting, I'm not keen in specifically on coyotes. So I'm always going to start with a prey sound. I'm probably going to start like jackrabbit or cottontail, depending on where I am. Maybe it may be a bird sound. Right. And one thing I really like to do with the prey sounds is I start with my collar really low at first, just because if there is one really close, you're not going to blow them out of there. Mm-hmm. And with how I do approach areas, a lot of times that happens. I'll get into a spot. I'll turn the collar on super quiet. And within the first three minutes, I mean, I got one on top of me. So I'll play it real quiet. Uh, and then I'll kind of, I'll increase the volume. And then one thing I really like to do is I call it feathering the volume. So I'll take the volume all the way up. I'll leave it on loud for a little bit. I'll bring it to medium. I'll bring it back up loud. I'll take it down all the way low. And I'll just kind of play play that for a little bit. I'll do it um, as well. Yeah. And then I'll sit there quiet for a little bit. Um, and then I'll decide, you know, <laughs> A, do I see anything? Because if I see a fox, then I'm going to flip on the, you know, red fox pup distress or, or coyote, coyote raiding a fox den. Then it's just over, right? Because those foxes are the easiest thing to call in ever once you know they're there. Um, if I don't see anything that tells me what's in the area, I default to coyote for sure. Mm-hmm. And so I'll wait a little bit and then I'll typically play either like a mild interrogation howl or a long haul just to see if I can get a response back. If that response is really far away, I cut the distance. I actually move my setup. Most people don't do that. Most people will stay planted and try to call them all the way in. Mm-hmm. I would say if that coyote responds to me from anywhere further than 400 yards, I'm actually going to get up and cut the distance and then I'm going to, you know, once I cut the distance and reset up to a spot where I'm confident I can get to without them seeing me, then I'm going to start getting pretty aggressive. Like I'm a coyote that has just now cut the distance and, and gotten aggressive with it. If one doesn't respond to me, I'm going to go from like that interrogation howl, long howl to probably just a little bit more uh, aggressive coyote sound. Sometimes I'll even do like, um, cause I already had played a prey sound, right? And so I'll do like a crow sound like a, a, a murder, a crows are on a kill. Um, sometimes that like gives the paints the picture of like, okay, a coyote caught something, it howled and now the crows are there and I'm going to go pick up the scraps. So you'll get coyote, uh, foxes and bobcats a lot on that. And then, I mean, obviously I'll try a bunch of different stuff depending on how good the area looks. You know, we're probably at this point, we're 10, 15 minutes in at least to my calling sequence. I'll try a couple of more, you know, 
coyote vocals to see if I can't, you know, entice a response. Cause once they respond, I feel really good about being able to call them in and kill them like really good. I would say if a coyote responds to me, I'm going to kill it probably 75, 80% of the time. Nice. Um, if, if it doesn't respond, obviously, I mean, the last thing I'm going to play before I leave an area is pop distress. Um, some type of bad brother PT sound or dead Raider or, just some, some type of uh, pup distress. Typically, once you play that, they come pretty quick if they're going to come. And so that's kind of like my closer sound, I guess. So that's like my my typical average coyote stand sequence that I do. Yeah. I, I typically end with coyote distress as well a lot of times. Not not always, but yeah. I would say nine out of ten times that's my end, my closing. And my I don't like to well. start with it. I feel like, I feel no, like I it's kind it. of overplayed and i feel like people could wear it out pretty easy so i always try to kill them before i get to playing that i guess <laughs> yeah, yeah the only time that i start with coyote distress sounds and, and it doesn't always have to be pup distress um just coyote distress type sounds uh is when i'm calling in the middle of the day for some reason i've never had and i shouldn't say never never is not a good word i don't usually have great success with prey sounds if i'm calling past like you know 11 30 in the morning till yep. you know, yeah yeah i mean that makes sense right they're just so. not they're not hunting they're more nocturnal hunters yeah. so. you gotta it, it's got to be something that evokes a response that is not driven by their bellies you know yep yep so. i would totally agree with you especially like when you get into that that magical time frame problem. Okay. There's like breeding season, which is amazing for vocals. One of my favorite times of year to hunt coyotes. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the magical, like three week time frame where the pups are coming out of the dens and hunting for the first time on their own. Oh yeah. And like, where you just call in monster groups of coyotes and like that pup distress sound during that window of time is just bonkers. Like that is the killer sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because mom and dad are like, oh, one of the pups got caught. Let's go help them, you know? <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. My The very first time I killed uh, a coyote when my, with my son, he was like one years old. I had him in a backpack. And uh, it was a little early still. I went out. I think it was like, I don't know. And it was hot. It was hot here. It was probably like one thirty, almost two o'clock. And I'm like, I'm going to go set up over here. I'm going to start with a, you know, a pup distress sound. Man, I called in like 10 together. And the shitty thing is I didn't realize it at first because I mean, they were just dive bombing from every freaking direction. It was like a drive-by shooting and close, <laughs> close to like, you know, five, six yards away. And I got my son with me and I only got five arrows and I'm like, you know, <laughs> and the first one that stopped, I just drew back like quick. Cause like I tell people it is like a drive by shooting. You just gotta be quick. Right. And I, and I end up shooting, actually shooting the pup and oh my God, freaking all hell broke loose. Cause it was flipping around and uh, my son actually shit himself. Not because of, not because of the, what was going on. I don't even think he saw that. 90% of it, of it, he said, he, I don't know if he does, he says he remembers, but he doesn't freaking remember. He just remembers because <laughs> I tell him the story. But, um, yeah. And then when he pooped himself, I think 
I think honestly they smelt him and then that's when they busted out. <laughs> yeah, he, Man, that's awesome. You got him out there so young and early. You know, I got two young kids right now. I'm doing the same thing, just taking them with me everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you gotta. Yeah. I mean, that's how you you know, at least keep that's what my yeah. dad did with me. I've been hunting since Yeah, that's how you keep doing it too, you know. Yeah, um, true. One thing I wanted to touch on a little bit more, John, too, you know, I kind of mentioned like if a coyote howls back, like I feel really good about being able to kill him. Mm -hmm. I would say like part of the success there is, and this goes for elk too. I mean, people that are just, and turkeys, um, you know, if if you're just getting into hunting a species and you want general overall success, a really way to do that, a good way to do that through calling is mimicry, right? If the coyote barks at you, bark back because that, whether you know it or not, that, that bark is a really aggressive sound. And so if you challenge him back, it's most likely that he's going to come in, right? If, if he barks at you and you go all passive and submissive, mm-hmm. not as likely, right? So I think, you know, I kind of use that mimicry as a general guideline. And then you just really, I try to like just listen really carefully when they do respond and try to get their temperature and then just act accordingly. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's sound advice for sure. It's, it's worked for me, like I said, but if I was setting up for shotgun, setting up for rifle, those coyotes, I think that number thirty-five percent I gave you would have been much higher. Oh yeah, because yeah, I, yeah. Well, see, the thing is too, like I set up where I can only see like thirty, forty yards. Like right. I, I don't, I can't see past that. Then that, that's one of the things that people can't get over, especially guys who've been hunting coyotes for a very long time. Like they want to try with a bow. They can't get over it. Everybody wants to be able to see. It's a lot more like hunting them with a shotgun than a rifle for sure. But even like more so, right? Yeah. Well, even a shotgun, like you can, you can pick more open spots and just sit completely still because they're not going to catch you drawing back and you could just wait till they get close and then pop up and shoot. Right. You, you, You could do that with a shotgun. You can't do that with a bow. Like you're yep. going to get busted nine times out of 10 drawing back if you don't have the right setup. Yep, exactly. So. You know, I, that's, that's a good, uh, I guess a good segue. And, you know, something that like I've turkey hunted with a bow for a long time and shooting a turkey out of a ground blind with a bow, not that hard. Shooting a turkey from the ground outside of a ground blind with a bow, I swear to you, is one of the hardest things to do. Yeah, like, I'm about for to the do exact that reason you mentioned. I'm coming up yep, to, for the, I'm coming up to your neck of the woods. Are you? Yeah, I'll be in I'll be in Denver on uh Saturday morning. I'll be there and then I'm uh I'm meeting up with uh, do you know Santino? Okay. What's that? You doing some some bow hunting for turkeys out y- there? Yes, I am. Do you know Santino? I don't. Oh, okay. I figured you'd you'd know Santino Castellanos. Uh, he's uh, he's kind of uh, a, a Colorado staple over there. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go up and uh, meet up with him, and I think we're going to actually go to Nebraska is where we're going. Yeah, he's yeah, going. because Nebraska opened on the 25th, and our turkey season here in Colorado doesn't open until the 8th. So that'd be not this weekend, but the following. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, man, it's fun. But, you know, your point of just the hardest thing, obviously, about bow hunting, no matter what you're hunting, is getting the draw off, right? Coming to full draws where you're going to get busted nine times out of 10 if you're going to get busted. Yeah. And so I can absolutely see with how you set up for, for coyotes for bow hunting is probably very similar to how I try to set up for turkeys for bow hunting, 
right? And that's to give yourself a safe place to draw or some type of cover where they're going to either pass behind a log or put their head down below a rise that's going to give you a chance to draw. Right. Have you used any of the like bow mounted decoys or, or fans? No, not, not or... for, I, I use fans. Like I, I love fanning turkeys. Actually. I think it's really, it's like a fun way to hunt them. I know a lot of people are like, especially in the Southeast and the East people are like really against reaping turkeys, but I just think it's hilarious. Hmm. Especially like it's, I, I, you know, I was just on a podcast the other week talking about this, but it's, I use the analogy of like a fired up bull. Like, there's like in elk hunting, one of the best experiences you can have is challenge bugling in a bull that is just fired up. Turkey hunting to me is the same way. There's nothing better than reaping in a, a Tom that is just fired up and he's going to come like try to kick the decoy out of your hand. Like to me, that is just <laughs> hilarious. Right. So yeah, I mean, I use the fan, but I don't use it to draw behind. Like okay. when I'm bow hunting turkeys, it's more of a less of a decoy setup and more of like a run and gun just because I'm too ADD to sit in one spot forever. I just don't like that style of hunting. I grew up doing it in tree stands in Wisconsin and I'm good to never sit in a ground blind or tree stand again, as long as I live. So <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. I yeah. The feeling. yeah I, I, I figured. So yeah, I, it's way more running gun, gun style for me. And the answer your questions, no bull mounted decoys. I don't like it for big game. I just don't think it's safe. I don't like having something attached to my bow. I feel like it would blow around in the wind. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I don't know, like, bow hunting turkeys from the ground for me was a three year endeavor that like I, cause I was, I was trying to actually do it like no ghillie suits, no ground blinds, no decoys to hide behind like true running gun, just you versus the Turkey, right. With the bow. Mm. And I finally kind of had it mastered and figured out. <laughs> and, and so I'm going to continue to continue to try to kill it with the bow without hiding behind anything while I can. Yeah. So I've, mostly done it without i'll throw some decoys out there i've never used the ultimate predator or any of the bow mounted ones for turkey i've used them for other animals i use them for muleys i've used them for antelope elk so i know they work but i have oh, yeah, I i've had, had no doubt that they work <laughs> i i bought almost them. shot somebody on accident really <laughs> like See, no joke scary. like we, we, yeah, that's, and that's why I don't use them because we were, um, elk hunting in Colorado over the counter. So just a ton of people. Right. And I'm in an area where I normally don't see people. One of my like hunting holes actually. Mm -hmm. And the guy was a really good caller and it was, it was him and a buddy and it was me and a buddy. And I had a, um, I, I had an either sex tag, but like, I only was going to shoot a bull mm -hmm. just because that's just what I do. Cause I know I can get one pretty much every year. So why not wait for a bull? And he had the ultimate predator cow decoy. And we were calling back and forth and we were moving toward each other and everything was just like, it was just like a full on, all right, these are elk scenario in your head. Like you're ready to go. I can hear them coming through the trees. I come to full draw. This guy steps out with a cow decoy, like the cow head pokes out around the tree and I couldn't like that. I could see the head, but I couldn't see the slit where the bow was. Mm. And I, I, I was at full draw ready for a bow, a bull to follow this cow out. And my front pins like rested right there. Right. And then the decoy comes out far enough where I can see the slit and my heart jumps. I come off full draw and I immediately, I screamed. I was like, Hey, like it, it freaked me out. Like wow. if I would have been a less experienced bow hunter, that was okay. Shooting a cow, dude, the arrow could have been going and that's bow hunting. Like now let's not wow. get into the side fact of in Colorado, we have muzzleloader seasons during our archery season. 
Yeah. Like, hell no, you will not catch me dead in Colorado with a freaking decoy mounted to my bow and there's muzzleloader hunters out there and I'm in full camo. No way, not worth it. Interesting, interesting. Well, I'm going to be on private land, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> but for, for this turkey hunt anyway. And when I use the deer decoy... Well, now that you're saying that with during the archery season, see, I never thought about it with archery season. I'd never use it if there's a gun, a firearm season going on. So, like, I know the firearm season doesn't start in Nebraska until I think the same as opening days you guys have in Colorado. I think it's the following weekend. Um, I think it's just archery only. But I have one of those, and I haven't used it. It's been in a freaking box. Like, I bought it, like, two years ago. I have... One of those, uh, who makes the damn thing? Killer Gear, Jake fan. Okay. So it's like a, it's like an umbrella. You like hold it out in front of you, mm. and then it's got a little leg that kicks out that you can stake it down, and you can just leave it there. It's not necessarily it's not attached to your bow. Right. So I'm kind of curious. I want to, I want to use that. I yeah. I mean, that's kind of my turkey setup is at least for Western hunting. I like to be like more mobile. And so for decoys, right. I'll have like a collapsible, those Montana collapsible ones, just cause you can shove two of them in your vest and they're light. They don't take up any space. Mm-hmm. And then that decoy that you're describing, I have something similar. It's just, a I can't remember who makes it, if it's avian or who makes it, but it's a, a, a half decoy uh-huh. with the real fan and the real beard that hangs from it. And it's got a stake. And yeah. so you can use it to fan birds and stake it in the ground or you can use it as like a normal decoy and set it out in front of a ground blind. And so I've had really good success with that thing. That's cool. Yeah. I'm going to, we'll see. I don't know. I'm, I am definitely not, um, a turkey hunter. Like I do not, I love turkey hunting, but I don't consider myself a good turkey hunter. You know, I definitely, somebody calls me up and says, Hey, uh, I want you to guide me for turkey. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't want, I'm not going to take your money. You know, um, even though I might, might as might well get them in there. I don't know. I've, I've had plenty of success myself, but most of my turkey hunting sounds like you're bow hunting for coyote success. I've killed, which may or may not be a lot of birds. I don't know, but I've killed at least 14, but those were almost all during the fall season when I was hunting deer and I was like, Oh, there's turkey over there. Yeah, yeah I've actually, I've never <laughs> killed a turkey. I've never killed a turkey in the fall. Not oh, one. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just have never, I've never gotten like the fall, fall tag because I guess for me, like I, the thing I really love about turkey hunting is, is the vocal aspect. I think I mentioned that before yep. and just getting them all fired up. And sure. Having that coincidental, like they're just hammering, gobbling at you and they come in from 500 yards away and they strut all the way in your lap. Like, so, and you're just not going to get that in fall. So that's why I just, I've never in the fall. I've always just focused on deer and elk and other stuff, but yeah. Well, you know, like I said, it was like an opportunity thing. I didn't go out yeah. specifically for them. I've actually shot quite a few from tree stands, like in the Midwest, yep. you know, I had a fall Turkey tag in my pocket and sitting there waiting for a white tail deer. And then, well, oh, here comes some Turkey. Yep. And, uh, you know, I've, trust me, there's been times where I wish I had a turkey tag in my pocket sitting in a tree stand in Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet. I bet. Yep. So, yeah, man. But, um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about turkey now. Run me through. You, you show up to your spot before first light. What are you doing? 
Take me through a day turkey or a morning of turkey hunting. Yeah, I think obviously, I mean, turkey hunting in the West is so much different than where I grew up hunting them in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give you my scenario for the Western birds, right? Which I would consider like, you know, I do a couple turkey tours every year and it consists of like Colorado, Nebraska, South Dakota, Wyoming, Kansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Utah. South Dakota is also turkey hunting. Yeah, probably it's up there. It's, it's, I think I like Colorado a little bit better. Um, just like the level of the mountains, but yeah, I think I would put South Dakota in my top three places to hunt turkeys, the black Hills specifically the top three places to hunt turkeys that I've ever been. Yeah. I like, I like hunting Turkey over there. It's a ton of fun, man. So let's for this scenario, assume that we're in the West nine times out of 10 going in on a morning. I know where they are already. I found them in the roost the night before. So I know if not, if I don't know exactly what tree they're in, I know what ridge they're on. Right. Mm-hmm. And then what I've noticed in the West is a lot of these birds are roosting on trees that are near the summit or near the peak of whatever elevation they're by. So I'll use the Black Hills of South Dakota as a good example. These turkeys love to run these ridges. And then what they'll do is they'll get to the peak of the ridge right before like nightfall and they'll just gobble, 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 hammer like crazy call all the turkeys in so that they can all roost together mm-hmm. because they know where they're about to be safe up on the limb. And so what they do is they just kind of jump off. Like it's almost like a jump and coast off the highest point of elevation to a tree limb that is at the exact same level. So this tree might be a lodgepole or something. And it's about 15 yards, 30 yards down the hill from where the, you know, the peak is. And so those turkeys are roosted at the same exact elevation level as the peak of the mountain just suspended in the air on a tree limb. Right. Um, and so typically if I'm going in that next morning and I know where they are, I know roughly where they left from and that's where I'm going to set up. If I'm trying to kill them off the limb, which actually I don't really like doing that much. It's mm-hmm. definitely your highest percentage chance of killing a Turkey. Like if you're just trying to kill one hundred percent, just get to what I call the launch pad. It's where they take off from to get up on that limb. That's nine times out of 10, in the same spot. They're going to land back that next morning. So if you can watch them take off from that launch pad to a limb, they're going to come back to that same launch pad in the morning. So if as the sun comes up, you're sitting there with decoys in the ground blind or sitting there with decoys behind a tree, they're going to come basically back to that spot nine times out of 10. So I'd say like from an effectiveness standpoint, that's probably the best thing to do. Again, not my favorite thing to do. I actually like to let them, you know, and where that launch pad is, they typically land there and then they'll either in that exact spot or within a hundred yards, they're going to hit what they like, I guess people refer to as their strut zone. Mm -hmm. And so for the whole first part of the morning until like 9am, they're just going to strut and spin in a circle and not leave that spot. And the moral of that story is if you're not set up on the strut zone spot, you're not, you're not going to kill them. I mean, you could try to spot and stalk sneaky in there and kill them, but you're not going to call them off that strut zone. So at that point, just freaking back out, let them do their thing. Let them spin around in the spot for a few hours and then kill them when they move off their strut zone. And that's my favorite time to call them in because they're really fired up. They've just been sitting, spinning in a circle for three hours, gobbling their heads off. And now they're about to start wandering to try to find some more hens because in that strut zone, they've either breeded every hen that's receptive um, or they've checked every hen and they know that they're not receptive. Right. So you then play the role of that lost hen that is receptive. Right. And that's where you just get them coming in at a hundred miles an hour and you even get gobblers fighting each other. And that's like, that's when I like to kill them the most. So, I mean, sometimes honestly, I'll be lazy and sleep in. I won't even get up at first light 
just because I just don't think the experience of killing them off the limb is as fun. Gotcha. So now you're they're they're leaving the 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 strut zone here. What are we? What are you throwing at them to try to entice them to come to you? Yeah, I think the most important thing there is it's not necessarily that you're making them come to you, mm-hmm. but that you're trying to deflect them off their natural path. Okay. Right? So if you know that they are they've they're you know in this scenario in the Black Hills, right? They're on their launch pad. They've left their launch pad fifty yards, and they're in their strut zone. They're spinning around. You know their direction of travel now because they've gone from point eight A, which is their uh, launch pad, to point B, which is their strut zone. That's your line, and they're going to kind of continue on that line typically at roughly the same elevation. They don't like to lose or gain elevation a ton unless there's a really good food source for them. For example, in the Black Hills down low, there's often meadows, right? Hay pastures or egg fields that they'll then they'll have a reason to drop down off that elevation. Um, but for the most part, they like to stay above their prey. I think just because turkeys naturally have those big legs and that's how they get away from predators, right? They, they like to be above them. Um, and they can, I think, take off a little bit better. But yeah, so I, I try to figure out what their natural direction of travel is and then get in that path to do, just not have to move them off their I, in an ideal situation, their natural path of travel is right through where your decoys would be set up. You may have to pull them a little bit. And of course, I mean, I only hunt public land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes you're limited, like you have to pull them. Like last year, I called a bird in from 500 yards away. He was oh, wow. on a strut zone spinning around on, yeah, it was the farthest I've ever called in a bird by far. Um, we found him on a private field. And then we looked at like, all right, we can go around. And that's how I know it was 500 yards. I dropped a pin on him where we saw him below. We went around up top, went down through the public land. And I was calling absolutely as loud as I humanly could on a diaphragm, on a trumpet. And finally, after 10 minutes of calling with no response, he fired back just off in the distance. And from that second he responded, he was on a string coming to us. And, you know, we shot him at 10 steps. <laughs> but, wow. Wow. So sometimes you can't get on their path of natural travel. If you're on their path of natural travel, it's pretty simple, man. Set out a decoy, a couple light end calls. And, you know, another thing I really like to do with calling is not what I call non-turkey vocals. So you're uh, scratching, scratching at the leaves, uh, spit drumming things that the turkeys on public land don't get thrown at them all the time. They hear that hen yelp all year long. Like everybody's throwing that at them. Mm-hmm. So I like to try to use some of those more non-conventional calls. I'm, I'm kind of careful with the gobble tube uh, on public just because that can be a recipe for disaster. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I do use it sometimes. Um, so I, I guess I'll go back to the, the example where you're not on their net path of natural travel. And that's where you have to get more aggressive from a calling perspective. And that's where I'm going to get into those like, really loud yelps and cuts. So just trying to get that thing fired up, you know, like those, those cuts I think are what really get Tom's work worked up. So if I have to pull them a long way, that's the the direction I'm going to go. Nice. No, I, I, I kind of view them like, like little elk. Oh, and for I, sure. And I it's find myself great. hunting them like little elk. Yeah. Um, then you're doing it right. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's, I mean, I kind of have that same, I have that same approach with turkey as I do with elk. Now, the major difference is I know the elk language a lot better than I know turkey language. I also know how to call a lot better, I think, with an elk, uh, elk sounds. Yeah, I can yelp. I can, 
you know, I can make some turkey sounds, but I'm definitely not a uh, master at turkey turkey vocals. Um, but I, if I ever find some freaking more time on my hands, I, I'm planning on <laughs> getting better. I said that to myself last year. I'm like, oh, I gotta get way better at freaking turkey calling for next season. And I woke up and it was already fucking April. So, you know, it's like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing on that front. If yeah. you had to pick one to be better at calling at, you pick the right one. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. Because, uh, and the diehard turkey hunters are going to just kill me for saying this, but I don't think it's nearly as important with turkeys to sound good as it is with elk. Mm. Does that make sense? Like, I, I truly do believe that. Yeah. I don't know. See, I don't even, I'm, I might, I'm not disagreeing with you. Um, obviously, cause I don't, I can't, I can't make the distinction between the two of them, but I don't think you necessarily have to sound good while elk hunting. Like, I mean, like pitch and all that stuff. Like, I don't think you need to be convincing, uh, as far as, the sound is concerned or the sound quality is concerned. I think you just need to know what to say, when to say it with elk. I I think that's like the most, it's like more important for you to be able to know when to cow call or when to, you know, make a challenge bugle versus a, you know, roundup bugle or whatever. It's it's more what you're saying than how you're saying it. Yes. Yes. Because how many times have you, you've been in the elk woods and you've heard a, bugle and like yo that's got to be a person and then you're like oh shit that's a fucking elk <laughs> yeah yeah for sure yeah because that I happens think that you know a lot. i will preface that with you can get away with like a really bad elk bugle more often than you can a really bad cow sound i guess that's what i was getting true at i was saying i think it's true. more important to sound good yeah, on an elk call than it is on a turkey call yeah because the i don't yeah i'm with you i'm definitely with the bugles because yeah. cows I haven't heard a whole lot of cows that make irregular sounding, you know, mews or chirps or every now and then you get that one cow that just like, I had this happen where dude, it was the weirdest thing. I was guiding a buddy (laughs) and I'm doing like the, you know, I I was mewing and I'm like doing kind of like a lost mew and waiting for a response. And then all of a sudden I get like, mew, 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 mew. And dude, I'm not exaggerating. It kept going for like five minutes yep. and I was like, surely this is a hunter just trying to tell us that it's a hunter, right. Without like saying something audibly. And then sure enough, like we just kind of stayed there like two minutes later, there it comes. this whole herd just comes right up over the hill. Yep. That's actually a very, <laughs> very, uh, common cow behavior. Uh, it's that repeat, 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 repeat yep. for like five yep. and a half minutes straight. Like it just, I was like, what yeah. in the hell? I don't know if I've ever heard it for five and a half minutes straight, but I've heard was, the whole it was repeat so, thing like a lot. It was, it was so long. Yeah. Like you'll hear the, you know, mew, mew, mew. but like, yeah. this was just repeat. Beep, 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 beep. I thought it was, it was anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Moral no, of the story. Don't turkey, ever discount any sound that you hear. Because you never exactly. Know. And yeah. you, I've heard the craziest bugles too. Like some that just sound like pipsqueaks and are giants and vice versa. But on the Turkey thing, I think it is important to know what you're saying in the Turkey woods as well. Yeah. Um, it's just far less of a complex language than elk, like far less, you know, a, a bull bull has three, three bugles it makes in general. Right. Yeah. A cow has probably six or seven different 
things that it can say with its sequence of news, probably more, maybe eight or nine, right? So there, an elk can say, we'll say 13 things for simplicity. A turkey really says like five. Yeah. So the, the language is just far less complex. Yeah. I can see and that. again, the, the, the people who are just super into turkey hunting and that's the one thing they do, they're going to be like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> having, <laughs> having hunted both elk and turkey very seriously for 10 years. Right. That's just the reality of it. it you know, and I think, I think the guys who are hunting back east, you're dealing with a little bit different bird. You have to kind of like throw those you're dealing with a different bird and you're dealing with a different group of people because mm-hmm. they take most guys take turkey hunting seriously back east where once you get you know right about Colorado <laughs> you know the the turkey hunting the seriousness of turkey hunting kind of goes way the hell down it's like this is what i do in the spring just because mm-hmm. i like to keep on hunting it's not because I'm a turkey hunter. They don't people don't necessarily identify. And again, I'm sure we'll have some people that disagree with me and you here, but there's not it's not as um common of a practice. And I think the side effect to that is the turkeys don't hear a lot of good calling and so they're more likely to come into just a about anything where back east they've heard every you know awesome caller there is and so they have to throw in those extra you know those the scratches and the you know and the purrs and the you know all the extra little nuanced items that go go with turkey hunting to be successful to convince those bird those bigger birds that you know that they're there's actually turkey over there. Yeah, man. And it is, turkey hunting is a religion down south. Like, oh, yeah, it is. It's, it's it. big southeast, in the Midwest. Southeast oh, yeah. it's, is it's crazy. Big, yeah. It's big in the East. It's big in the Midwest. But when you're talking like Southeast, turkey hunting is a religion. Yep. Like, there are people that only turkey hunt. They don't hunt anything else. They couldn't care less about deer. Like they are turkey hunters. Yeah. And I mean, I definitely consider myself a turkey hunter, man. Like I do love it. Like, I could in the spring, I could be bear hunting or shed hunting or fishing or like an eye turkey hunt. I travel 12 states a year turkey hunting because I do love it. I'm tore up with it. So I do consider myself a turkey hunter, but I also consider myself an elk hunter. And I, like right. you said, yep. it's, it's my springtime activity. Yep. I'm, I'm a hunter. I, I hunt everything. I'm a jack of all trades. So, but. Yep. And you're right, man. In the, in the South, I think where they get the really good calling, mm-hmm. it's just like calling an elk in, a, in an over-the-counter unit versus calling an elk in like a high-point draw unit. Exactly. Like That's I've had the opportunity. Way. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to hunt one high-point draw unit in my life. I guided a buddy on a, on an elk hunt. You know, he had a muzzleloader tag. I actually filmed this on my YouTube channel, but dude, I was calling an elk like nobody's business because. I always thought I was like a mediocre elk caller in these, you know, over the counter units calling in like a bull or two a day and then <laughs> go to this unit and I'm just getting run over and I, I couldn't do wrong. And I was like, okay, there's a big difference between what that, you know, <laughs> the gullibility I'll call it of an elk and over the counter versus pointing units. And I'd imagine it's the same with turkeys in yeah. the Southeast it, versus everywhere else. 
there's definitely the gullibility factor, but there's also the density factor, and the and the and usually uh, the, both density of elk and density of hunters. So you got everything yeah. kind of working against you on the over the counter thing. These guys have these more people in there, less typically less elk, and they've heard every freaking thing. You know, even so. yeah, even in even in over the counter units in Colorado where you're in the elk, a lot of times, and you made a really good point when you said animal density. When when you're in the elk and over the counter units, most of the time they're tight lipped because through whether it's you know, whatever came first, the chicken or the egg, whether it's the evolution of only the quiet ones survived mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or the loud ones got killed, whatever way you want to look at it. But like, man, even if you're in them, it's unless you're in that magical time window where they're just, you know, there's a hot cow mm -hmm. and they're pretty quiet. Like you, yep. I kill nine, nine out of 10 elk. I'll, I'll call in or kill on a cow sounds. Like I really don't do much bugling. Right. Yeah, well, it depends for me. I'm all over the place. Some sometimes I'm very heavy bugles. Sometimes I'm not. But there's a lot of validity to what you just said in, in evolution. If you think about, and I don't know if you've been to any areas yet where you've hunted that had used to have excellent elk herds, and then they introduced wolves or or wolves got overpopulated, and they do not talk at all because they know if they do. They're going to call in wolves yeah. uh, or other predators. Well, it doesn't have well, to John, uh, wolves, our so. our elk here in our elk here in Colorado are, are about to learn that behavior. Sadly, yeah, yeah. Well, I know, and it's it's. Uh, I'll I'll even take some ownership of it. That's it's all our faults as sportsmen that we did not get involved. Just I don't know if you know the statistics of it all, but they lost that ballot initiative by less than 1%. It was like 0.8 or 0.9%. Uh, it was like 50.9% won, won the ballot. So they Jeez. lost, it was 49.1 or whatever. I ran the numbers and it was like 1.2 million people voted for that. And then I looked and I'm like, there's 1.1 million people registered to hunt in Colorado. So if all the hunters showed up, it would have been a landslide. There's no way that would have passed. Yeah. It wouldn't even have been close. Nope. So if you want to fucking bitch about wolves, go look at yourself in the mirror and you can point the finger right there. So, yeah, you know, unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, yeah, we know what I'm, I, John, I live in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle of elk fuckery that's about to happen too. Yeah. Like they're they've announced their three like planned release sites, oh, and they, I am smack in the dab. I am smack dab in the middle of those three points. Mm. Yeah, that so is that'll be fun. That sucks, man. <laughs> yeah, and you know, like I grew up around them. Like I grew up in northern Wisconsin. Um, I think I told you some of these stories and stuff over over lunch, but. And I, I grew up around wolves. I've seen what they do to deer herds. I've seen what they do to the just natural ecology of how animals behave. And I've had to deal with them, man. It's not, uh, yeah. it's not fun. It's not what all the people, people of Boulder think, you know, no. that they're going to hear a, no. hear a cool, hear a cool wolf howl and, 
you know, just get to live their lives and their pets are going to be safe. It's just yeah. not, not no. how the world works. No, it's not. And, and listen, I'm not, I'm not an anti wolf guy. Like I'm not like one of these guys that like, Oh, you know, shoot, shovel, shut up. I'm not, that's not my philosophy. I mean, as a formerly in a wildlife management position, uh, I view things a little differently. I would not have reintroduced wolves in an ecosystem that hasn't seen them, you know, in a very long time or one that is so close to the Mexican gray wolf that might be migrating up from Arizona and from, from New Mexico, because that's going to cause a whole bunch of other freaking problems. But, um, you know, if you're going to have wolves, you have to have a very sound management plan in place that's the thing colorado doesn't have shit they don't have they they don't even have anything they don't have anything in place like nothing is is really that's uh, what scares me is actually it's written in the plan that there is no management plan it's written it's it's written into it that there is not going to be a hunting season to control the population and that's that's what scares the shit out of me yep yep exactly it is very, no, very, very scary. That's a whole nother podcast we can dive down. But yeah. 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 I, uh, anyway, well, man, um, I want to thank you for coming on, sharing some knowledge with us. It was a cool podcast. It's been a while since I've, you, you actually, you said a couple things that, um, I hadn't heard before, which is refreshing after doing this for almost close to 16 years now, I think. So, I like to learn new things and I'm not saying that I don't learn new things all the time, but I haven't heard any variation of what you said. Like you're the first guy I ever heard say that like, pick up and go after a howl and cut the distance. That's, that's awesome to me. Said some cool Turkey, Turkey stuff. I can learn all the time because I'm not a well-versed Turkey hunter, but um, yeah, no, man, I appreciate, I appreciate you. It, man. I appreciate yeah, your, your outlook on stuff and, uh, and I, that's uh, some great feedback. I'd love to come back sure. on. You know, I, one of my downfalls is I don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts, just busy with work. And we'll start listening. I think to mine. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course, of course. <laughs> I think that makes, you know, some of the thoughts original and that's important, you know? Yeah. I don't listen to a whole lot of hunting podcasts anymore. And I do that specifically because I don't want it to alter what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I the original original is important. Right. I don't want to um I don't want to have the same guests on. I don't want to ask the same questions. I don't want to have the same segments. And a lot of times whether you like it or not, that just you know, it it happens subconsciously. So I'll catch one or two just cuz there's something that interests me, but I typically don't listen to specifically hunting tactics hunting stories different story but yeah yeah but anyway well cool man um where can our listeners find out more about you you said you mentioned a, your youtube channel let's uh why don't you plug those things and uh I'll let you go yeah man so i have a keep my facebook to myself and i actually don't really post anything about my personal life on social media i just kind of am against it but <laughs> i uh i have an instagram that's holds outdoors that's where i put up all my hunting stuff and then the YouTube channel is the same. It's Holtz Outdoors, so H-O-L-T-Z Outdoors. And, yeah, a bunch of good big game hunts on there, a couple predator hunts, lots of turkey hunts, lots of lots of waterfall hunts. And, yeah, man, it's a, I started filming probably like 
10 years ago. And I did it just to send my dad to hunt so he could like live vicariously through me and see the hunts I was going on. I was sending him the hunts on a flash drive in the mail. <laughs> and then my buddies are like, Hey, we want to watch them. So I put them up as private on YouTube and then they were like, put them public. So I did. And that's where it all started. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. Well, we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, John. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Take it easy. Bye. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the show. Really appreciate you. Keep those reviews and those comments coming. Helps us keep this free. Do me a favor, go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%, all one word. And check out Howl for Wildlife. Thank you very much and we'll catch you on the next show.